Hey everyone, it's Nico here with a quick editor's note before today's show. The conversation you are about to hear was recorded in the middle of February, so before the coronavirus became widespread here in the United States. I wanted to mention this because it might seem odd to some listeners to hear any hour-long conversation between three people today that doesn't at least make passing reference to the coronavirus and to the disruption it's created in all of our lives. What's more, we were three unrelated people in a small conference room, which, of course, is not the best social distancing. Because this is a conversation about the philosophical justifications for free speech, I thought it would be evergreen, and for the most part, I should say it still is, only without, you know, any reference to the current pandemic. Moving forward, the So To Speak team is going to do its best to keep publishing on our normal schedule. However, as you can probably imagine, coordinating with guests is a little bit more difficult than it normally is. So please, please bear with us if our schedule is slightly off in the coming weeks and months. Finally, as I said, today's episode is about the philosophical or normative justifications for free speech. And in that vein, I wanted to flag for you all a recently published article by FIRE President and CEO Greg Lukianoff. It's called Coronavirus and the Failure of the Marketplace of Ideas. In the piece, Greg argues for a pure informational theory of free speech, essentially arguing that having free speech is important because it's important to know the world as it is, even if knowing the world as it is means knowing that people believe silly or even dangerous things. It's a theory Greg has kicked around for many years and to which I allude early in the episode. It's obviously relevant to what's being discussed in this podcast, so I wanted to throw it out to you all because the piece was published after the conversation was recorded. I will link Greg's piece in the show notes. Now, let's get on to our coronavirus-free episode. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today we are recording from Washington, D.C., and I have the privilege and honor of sitting here with two distinguished guests, uh, the first of which, of course, is Ron Collins. He is a frequent guest on this podcast and uh, the editor of First Amendment News. Uh, also have a new course book out for First Amendment uh, education for law students. It was called First Thing First, right? Uh, for college students. College students. The law students' book is about a year and a half away. Ah, okay. And that will sell for ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big selling point of this new book is that it's what two ninety nine uh, on uh, ebook uh, with nine hundred links, and the paperback is sixteen dollars. So we plan to put casebook uh, major casebook uh, uh, houses out of business. Yeah, Ron is prolific in his writing. He's written many books, as you all know, because we've discussed many of them on this podcast. Uh, but our other guest today is Professor Joseph Bloker. He is the Lanty L. Smith, 67, professor of law at Duke. And he is the author of, as Ron points out, something like 16 articles on the first, law review articles on the First Amendment. I don't know if you counted correctly, They call Ron. that one-tenth of a Collins. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that doesn't count the Second Amendment articles he's done. <laughs> 
Are, are the First and Second Amendment your main areas of focus? They, they are. I'm going to make it to the Third Amendment at some point and uh, have, I'm Someone sure there's does. a podcast. <laughs> uh, there's got to be a podcast on quartering of troops and I'll get to do that. Um, but no, the First and Second Amendments and actually sometimes their overlap, uh, I, I, I think and write a lot about and happy to talk about. Well, it's an honor to have you uh, sitting with us today on the podcast. The reason you're here today is because you wrote two new law review articles that came out back-to-back or within the same season. Uh, There's one about bans, and then there's another one. Where did that come out? That came out in the Yale Law Journal. Yale, and there was Harvard and Yale, and I didn't know which one was which. Uh, But the other one, which I think will be the main focus of our conversation today, is free speech and justified true belief. And Ron, you really turned me on to this article in one of your First Amendment news um, articles because it was a lead story. Uh, You said it sparked a lot of questions for you. And so I gave it a read, and then we learned that Professor Bloker would be here in D.C., so we decided to get together. So let's just jump right in. May I just say something at the outset? You can, of course. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I I really believe that this article – I mean the two articles are really incredible, but I I think this one uh, that we're going to be discussing today – is one of the most important contributions to First Amendment scholarship that I've read in a long time. And that's why I'm delighted uh, to be here with Joseph today to discuss it because I think there's so many important uh, ideas in this uh, uh, article. Actually, it should be a book and I've been telling Joseph that. Uh, but so um, that's the reason why I, after reading it, I thought it was important that the readers of First Amendment News know about uh, the work that Joseph is doing. Well, very good. I know you have a bevy of questions that you want to ask him. I'm going to tee this up by reading the, if you'll indulge me, the first two paragraphs from your abstract in this article. And then I'll take uh, moderator's privilege here and ask the first question. Okay. So from the abstract, you write, law often prioritizes justified true beliefs. Evidence, even if probative and correct, must have a proper foundation. Expert witness testimony must be the product of reliable principles and methods. Prosecutors are not permitted to trick juries into convincing a, uh, convicting a defendant, even if that defendant is truly guilty. Judges' reasons, and not just the correctness of their holdings, are the engines of precedent. Lawyers are, in short, familiar with the notion that one must be right for the right reasons. And yet, the standard epistemic theory of the First Amendment, that the marketplace of ideas is the best test of truth, has generally focused on truth alone, as if all truth beliefs must be treated equally. This thin account leaves the epistemic theory vulnerable to withering criticisms, especially in a post-truth era. Your article... Professor Bloker, suggests that the epistemic theory of the First Amendment might be reframed around a different value, not truth alone, but knowledge. So by way of starting here generally, this might sound like a silly question, but why does defining the values, the constitutional values that the, one, the, that the First Amendment is meant to advance, why do they matter? This is a great question, and I, I appreciate you reading the abstract. It gave me a chance to let my head kind of come back from swelling after Ron's really generous introduction um, about the Truth piece. is my defense. <laughs> Fantastic. Knowledge is mine. Um, oh, I'm uh, in trouble already. <laughs> I, uh, I'm certainly not going to, uh, to pick that battle. I'm happy to die on that hill. Um, I think that the reason that um, a theory or a value um, underlying First Amendment doctrine or theory really matters is that really any account of why we would protect against 
um, a government, uh, a government's inclination to limit free speech has to have at its heart some kind of normative principle, some something we're trying to advance. Um, and there are lots of different possibilities out there. The sort of traditional three, as I'm sure all your listeners know, that people often refer to are democracy, some form of individual autonomy or truth. And I have always been drawn, although I think it may be less fashionable these days, to the third of those, the sort of truth-based, cognitive, epistemic, sort of... Although you write in your article that you, you kind of like to bring in all of those principles. I do. Values. I think there's no one, I'll put yeah. it this way. I think there's no single principle, and I'm not trying to argue for one here. Um, I think they're contextual. I think they change. I think that they vary over time. Um, but that I think we as scholars can, can add value really by sort of by thickening and revisiting kind of in the way that I think a truth-based account or a knowledge-based account of the First Amendment requires us to do with any belief, continually test, continually revise. And so this article is an effort really to kind of dig deeper on the traditional epistemic account. Yeah, well, let's Can lay I just out add for something? Yeah, that. go for it. So I think in addition to um, the, the importance of normative values, one of the one of the things, if we look at a text, be it a municipal ordinance or the Constitution, the words alone are never enough, all right? We need some way to either explain those words, I should say, instead of either, to explain those words and to limit them, right? We need some limiting principle. For example, when the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law, does it literally mean no law? Or, you know, what does the word abridging mean? So in order to give some meaning to those words, and to also place some limitation on them, all right, we need some, if you will, value, some checking principle. And that's why um, these discussions about values and or what I would call checking principles are so important to our discussion of the First Amendment. So let's define those three values generally for our listeners who might not be familiar with them. The autonomy argument is, yeah, is the libertarian argument, the, the, the argument that by nature of being human – uh, we have the right to be who we are and to speak our minds and that only a tyrannical government would limit your ability to do that in any significant way. Uh, the democracy argument is the argument that you need uh, the ability to speak out in order to participate in a participatory democracy, essentially, uh, and that limiting your ability to speak out limits the ability of that democracy to function. And then the truth argument, really popularized by Holmes, but as we were talking before the podcast had, well, Milton, goes back to Milton in Areopagitica, uh, who knew truth to be put worse to the wear when confronted in a free and open encounter with error, uh, to loosely quote it. Uh, that was almost exactly quoted. That was very well done. You go, yeah. <laughs> uh, I try and reread Areopagitica for all its flaws. But the, the problem with the truth argument that you need free speech, free expression in order to get to the truth is that sometimes truth doesn't always win out. It's kind of a romantic idea, this idea that truth will win out. So it's been opened up, as you write in your article, to criticism, especially in what many have called the post-truth era, the era where people can go into a pizza shop here in Washington, D.C. because they think there's some sort of sex ring happening there um, organized by politicians. Um, and the, the, the overall sort of societal-wide rejection of truth uh, that has existed in many, many spheres. And I don't know that there are many within the First Amendment community that I talk to today who really hang their hat on that justification. They seem to think it's an important value, but more often I'm seeing people say, well, the free speech is important for all three of these reasons. I'll put my cards on the table. For me, 
the main value that I have uh, in justifying my free speech beliefs is that it's, and this is taken from my boss, Greg Lukianoff, it's important to know the world as it is, mm. knowledge. So while the truth might not be there, there's a truth to knowing the untruth. That's a really smart point, Nico. And actually, your your account of the three v- <clears throat> major competing schools of value, I think, is, is worth just reemphasizing that those three, as you really well described, are not hemmed off from one another. They certainly overlap. They interact. You can believe in, you know, a, a, a democracy that is, as Robert Post has argued, a democracy that relies on knowledge, right? These two, these two may be sort of intersecting. In the article, and I'm not plowing any new ground here, I describe those as the external challenges to the truth-based view, which is to say, truth is not the end. There are epistemic values, cognitive values are not the end of the First Amendment. It is more important to you know, uh, promote a, um, a participatory or a legitimate democracy, or it's more important to pr- promote um, individual autonomy. My suspicion, though, is that even those theories can't totally escape uh, the value and the importance of some form of epistemology, right? A democracy relies on, a functioning democracy relies on on expert knowledge of one kind or another. We may disagree about what those expert knowledges are and who we can rely on, but that's important. You know, it goes back, since we've already got um, Milton on the table, um, uh, 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 we might as well put Kant on the table as well, that people who believe in autonomy also believe that a lie, an untruth, interferes with individual autonomy, right? So truth suffuses all of these things, or some, some cognitive value does. But that doesn't save us from what you just put on the table with the, you know, the the comet, um, uh, you know, the, the person who came up from North Carolina with an AR-15 to break up this sex ring in a pizza parlor basement, which is a perverse commitment to truth, right? A person who deeply believed that what was happening in this pizza parlor basement was a child sex ring run by apparently Democratic leaders, Um but is not itself grounded in anything that most of us would regard as any kind of truth. This is the sort of post-truth challenge. And as you say, and this confirms my suspicion that it's unfashionable, I think most free speech scholars are moving away from a view that puts the cognitive and epistemic values at the middle. And so my article, in some sense, is an, is an effort to reclaim that territory by reframing the value. If that yeah, well, do you think at any point in this century or this past century that the truth justification was the predominant justification. If you can give us kind of that history. It's, it's a good point. I'll, I'll hear quote um, my friend and um, colleague across the way, Bill Marshall at UNC, that this, this view that the marketplace of ideas is the best test of truth has been virtually canonized in doctrine. You see. Yeah, it's almost like a tick. We it's, just kind absolutely. Of <laughs> and, and, actually, and actually the way you describe it there is nice because I think because it's become a tick and almost reflexive, we may have, may have, um, and I say we, I mean, this is not to exclude myself, taken for granted what it really means and not really interrogated the difficulty of a truth-based or knowledge-based account. It's really tricky to know, um, as Ron and I have discussed before, what did Holmes himself mean by truth? Um, that itself is a really hard question. You have somewhere in here, and I'm trying to find it as I flip the page. Didn't Holmes say it's like the road I'm on or the, the path? The, the road I can't help traveling. And he uses this phrase. Which is another way of saying the thing I can't help believe. Exactly. And he actually uses that phrase as well, the can't help. Um, He refers to to the truth as really a series of of can't helps. Well, in that case, and the the ARR-15 guy, he couldn't help uh, it. He couldn't help but believe it. He couldn't help but believe it. But what's challenging about that, I think, is, well, many things. But one is, if you put that together, like, okay, the, the, the marketplace metaphor, and as Ron notes, he doesn't use actually the phrase marketplace of ideas. That doesn't come till much later. Um, but the marketplace metaphor that we credit to Abrams in 1919 puts truth at the center, you know, best test of truth, et cetera. 
but it doesn't give a definition of truth. If you look to his personal correspondence, you see these references to the road I can't help traveling. If you put those two things together, they fit together strangely. Like, what's the point of a competition among things you can't help? Like, what's what's the where's the room for evolution there? Where's the room for change? Um, and to me, that, that that raises really hard questions about you know what's the what's the what's the what's the evolution? What's the what's the metaphor here? We should really be looking for if. We can't help what we believe in the first place. Um, this article makes maybe a little bit of um, headway on that, but I try to address it in some others too. I think it's really hard. So the, one of the things I would add, um, the three values that we discussed earlier, that we were discussing earlier, um, as David and I argued in a book we did called The Death of Discourse, I think they overlooked something very fundamental. And that is, and this goes to the point that you talk about in terms of, Joseph, in terms of what constitutes the proper justifications and how do those justifications work in a particular culture. We have to understand that values don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in a culture. They, in this country, they exist in a highly capitalistic culture. In this country and other countries, they exist in a country, in a, uh, in a world very much influenced by technology, all right? I mean, you can have all of these values, but when the, when when technology is poured into the beaker of those values, it affects those values, all right? When highly advanced capitalism is poured into the beaker of those values, it affects those values. The other point we mentioned is the role of passion in, in a democratic society. When, when people act in a highly passionate way, all right, that likewise affects those values such that it may well be that if people st stop believing in the value of truth, all right, if it becomes largely irrelevant, then all of this discussion about truth is of no moment, all right? And I think that one of the great values of Joseph's article is he says, let's take our eyes, if you will, this fixation for a moment off truth, not to walk away from it, right? But let's talk about knowledge and let's talk about the preconditions necessary for having some, if you will, legitimating principle when it comes to knowledge such that we can say that X is true and Y is false. Do we say that categorically for all times, for all purposes? No, but we do need a red light to tell us when not to cross and a green light. You know, we need some rules of the road as it were. And so I think in all of this discussion, one of the things that I think is really important is to think about the context, as I call the beaker, into which those values are poured and what affects them. And I think in this regard, technology is, play, is a very important um, uh, uh, concern. And I say this for this reason. Um, we talk about knowledge, all right? In Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates makes the argument that knowledge is first and foremost based on logos, discussion, people talking. And he makes a strong argument against writing, all right? He says, you know, writing is dead. You can't cross-examine it, all right? Somebody else has done the work. Well, essentially, what's happened in modernity is Google has done the thinking for us. It has given us the answers. It has given us the shortcuts. We don't have to go through this process. So what happens is a lot of these First Amendment theories are really based on pre-technology eras. In fact, I would just say this and, and, and we can move on, but if you think about what I think is perhaps the most important word, one of the most important words in the First Amendment, is the word press. 
press was protected not as an institution but as a technology and there was a Although reason there was disagreement about that no no okay well okay but, but there was a reason i'm willing to say but there's a reason why it would be protected as a technology because it was that technology that had basically wrecked havoc on the catholic church all right and also wrecked havoc on a lot of um, political regimes because truth now could be transported in time and in distance. So there was something, a clear and present danger about the technology. And I think any discussion of the First Amendment that overlooks the means of communication overlooks something fundamental. If I can add on to that, I mean, I think <clears throat> what you're saying, Ron, is exactly right and is actually one of the central challenges that I can't say I resolve but try to address in the article, which is that, you know, given take the internet as sort of the technology of, of the moment with regard to the spread of truths. I think it's undoubtedly correct that people today have more access to more truths as just a total number, if you can count them up, than ever before. I mean, that's just our, even if Google is, and some people have argued this, uh, kind of part of our own extended minds. Like this is part of the knowledge that, or, I hate to use the word knowledge in a lower term, <laughs> the truth. Information. Which, I mean that not as a, as a uh, in the technical sense, but just the, the, the truth, the information to which we have access. But I think many people share the instinct that this has degraded our ability to actually know things in a, in a true in a true sense. And, you know, there's lots of ways to cash that out. It could be that we, we know more total truths, but we are also confused by more total falsehoods. The sort of ratio between the two has changed. And I think scholars of the marketplace of ideas haven't really grappled with the potential, you know, undermining, you know, uh, cost of that. The other thing is that I think what the, the difference between so internet, let's say online speech, comment section speech, we'll say, to give it sort of the lowest possible um, footing, and the kind of logos discourse, you know, that you might want to, might experience in whatever your favorite professional setting is, is big, even if the same propositions are being articulated. Like if I go in for a surgery, and I'm wondering if I'm going to lose my big toe in the surgery, and I go onto an online comment section, and I ask somebody, and I get a whole bunch of, you know, vituperative attack saying, of course, you're going to lose your toe. And, and then I go to my, you know, based on nothing, of course. And then I ask a surgeon and the surgeon tells me the same thing. Those two propositions have the same truth value. They're saying the same thing. But I think that everybody intuitively recognizes that's an internet troll said it and a surgeon said it. I think the surgeon's statement has something more to it, even though it's the same proposition. And to me, and this is what I'm trying to tease out in the article, is like that has something to do with, as you would say, the justifications. Like a surgeon comes to that belief based on decades of training and experience and an internet comment troll you know an internet troll comes to that just based on some kind of you know instinctual desire to to stick it to someone so else. so not to uh, characterize your article incorrectly but you advocate for giving privilege almost to expert opinion Pin opinion that's just you put it justified true belief Opinion from doctors, opinion from nutritionists, opinions from lawyers, uh, when they're commenting, of course, on their field. I think that's right. I would, the only thing I would, I, would, I would walk back a little bit is to say I think justifications matter, and I'm pretty agnostic or try to be in the article about which justifications count. So I think it matters why we believe what we believe. I can't say or show in this article, and maybe this is why Ron's right, I have to write a book and think through it more, like which are the justifications that should be privileged over, over others? In that particular hypo, absolutely. I care more about the doctor's opinion than someone I met online. Joseph, how but, are justifications in your view, and this is a tough question, it's not a rhetorical question because I don't know, how are they legitimated? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because uh, cards on the table. Alike. Well, no, I mean um, – this might surprise uh, Professor Bloch, but I used to work for the Institute for Justice, which does oh, yeah. First Amendment litigation sure. in 
and licensing regimes, uh, often where those licensing regimes intersect with speech. So tour guides, for example, or uh, the paleo blogger in North Carolina who was told he can't give people advice about his you know, paleo diet or even talk about his paleo diet because it would conflict with uh, nutritional licensing regimes. So you know, there are some things where it's clear as a society we've determined you need to have sort of specialized knowledge because you're taking someone into your own care, doctors, lawyers, for example. But there are <laughs> margins around everything, and this is what makes the law difficult, right? I, I completely agree, and I don't have an answer to that question, and and, and don't purport to have one here. I mean, uh, I think that w what you just described there, kind of, you know, you, you can imagine the sort of two extreme views. Is there is there is there some special justification for the knowledge that tour guides have that justifies some kind of governmental intervention? It's hard for me to imagine. Yeah. On the other hand, this is aside from standard <clears throat> business license. You absolutely. need an additional license. That's amazing to tell a story. I yeah. don't even know that, but that's that's, <laughs> that's amazing to me. On the other hand, there are ways in which. You know, despite the fact that we don't have like a separate, clear doctrine of academic freedom, there are certainly ways in which to pick on the opposite, opposite side of, this, of the scale. Um, educators, universities get a special kind of treatment that effectively exempts them from what would otherwise be straightforward First Amendment principles, like viewpoint discrimination, right? Like the very basis of grading exams, of just choosing who to hire, promote, and tenure in a university is based on content and viewpoint discrimination, which would if it were governmental action in a public sphere, clearly violate the First Amendment. But I think we're okay with that, and most people are anyway, because it's understood that universities and, you know, educational, higher education play some kind of special role in, you know, pursuing truths that are properly justified. Can I push back on that Please a little? Please do, yeah. So, so just a couple of things. One of the problems, or I should say, one of the issues that occurred to us, uh, David Scover and I, when we read Robert Post's book on this subject, was his what we thought is glorification of the university, um, or what Alan Bloom would call the democratization of the university, and that is if you look in the sciences today, they are heavily influenced in terms of their research at the big universities, heavily influenced by commercial interests. All right, so this idea that you know have some kind of Socratic exchange, you know, there. It really ignores, again, something central. We live in a highly capitalistic culture, all right? These universities are highly dependent, particularly in the sciences, all right, about funding from outside sources. Where does that funding come from? It comes from parties with, if you will, conflicts of interest. I mean, that's where a lot of it comes. So this ideal that somehow there's a certain sanctity in the university. The other question, and this goes to, to Bloom's point, is that Bloom argued years ago in the closing of the American mind with increasing frequency, what's happening in, in the universities, this democratization of truth, all right? That certain things are being cast out because they don't con com comport with the popular belief. And in fact, this gets me to raise you a question, ask you a question, Joseph. What, if I were to say, what do you make of the following phrase? the democratization of knowledge. What does that mean to you, that phrase? That's an interesting question. Um, while I think about it, let me answer your question about universities and come back also to Nico's question, which I haven't fully answered either. So I think, and this is probably where Post and I part ways, although I do have a lot of a lot of sympathy for um, uh, his, his general position, is that I think it goes too far to say that everything a university does is essentially exempt from free speech principles. I think that's I think that's wrong. I think that it is true that in a faculty meeting or in a classroom, the normal rules of viewpoint discrimination and content discrimination are essentially suspended. That I think that that is actually an area where 
it's possible and fair and right to evaluate ideas and, and to sort of push them. And not every idea gets equal weight. Um, if I were to come into my, I mean, I teach at a private university, but if I taught at University of North Carolina instead, and I were to come into my constitutional law class and start talking about flat earth, I could be fired. And that would make sense. Um, if I were to do that in a public square, I couldn't even be sanctioned $5. That would violate the First Amendment. So I think there are these contextual areas where well-functioning universities, at least, that say are entitled to some kind of deference. And I think it ties into the sort of knowledge generation function that they can play. The problem is, and this goes, I think the word that you both used earlier is sort of legitimation, like how do you know when they're doing it right, is a really hard question. Not everything that calls itself a university, I think, is entitled to that kind of treatment. Um, it's certainly true that commercial interests or others can pervert and sort of distort what universities are supposed to be doing. Um, that is an institutional problem. I don't have a good solution for it. Um, you know, t to say that that um, you know gives the government more or less power, as we see in many states where state legislatures are trying to in institute themselves more into universities is scary to me. Um, I think the self-governance here is very important, so I, I don't have a good, a good remedy for it. The, the other thing that um, I maybe don't say clearly in the article, but, but both these questions have, have raised is what, if, you've, if you've established a value, sort of a guiding value, a lodestar for your free speech approach, um, you know, how, like, where does it kind of come in your analysis? Is it? Exactly, yeah. So, so, so I'm glad, I'm glad that this is the question that yeah. I thought was just lurking, well, lurking we, around. Well, because we can all agree that this justified true belief is an important value. Absolutely. But the question, as in much of law, is how do you actually implement that Absolutely. value? Absolutely. So, so let me, let me say how you don't do it. Um, and this is, this is, this is where I think was sort of a concern may lurking between the last two questions. I think that free speech theories including this one, go wrong if they mistake the value for a prerequisite of coverage. So a truth-based account of the First Amendment, for example, shouldn't say only true speech is covered. That's of course wrong. The point is to put the value as the goal, as the end, right? I mean, see Alvarez, et cetera, et cetera, right? The marketplace of ideas is there to produce, to advance the value of truth in the traditional account, not to say only true statements get covered. Likewise, on my account, I'm not trying to say that only justified true beliefs should be covered. That would be an even more narrow view of the, of the, of the First Amendment, um, but rather to say that we should be, in fact, broadening our view to look at the social practices, the justifications, the ways in which when we interact, when we engage in the discourse that, that, that Ron and David have been writing about now for decades, we are actually advancing the values that the First Amendment is there for. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean protecting all professional speech or professional speech restrictions, but it means kind of focusing on those and not just the truth value of particular, particular statements. So when we talked about, you know, the, if you will, preconditions or justifications, and we talked about expert knowledge, um, Think of the following statement and why it's important. Um, Walter Cronkite is dead, all right? What we mean by that, or what I mean by that, is, is that there was a certain currency, if you will, in the 50s and 60s given to Walter, current, uh, Walter Cronkite and CBS News. If you will, it had a certain expert qualifying, legitimating principle, all right? That is simply no longer true. 
All right. I mean, some of us go to MSNBC for our truth. Some of us go to uh, Fox News. Some of us go to Breitbart. Some of others go to The Nation, you know, what have you. Uh, and others just rely on little sound bites that come across – or eye bites, as Dave and I call them, that come across their phone. And I think this is a really a, – a, a real uh, predicament. And one of the things that I, I thought found – Found just a fascinating. I mean, I just there's so many places in this where I have great. I, I'm holding a reprint of Joseph's article. I have great and yes and what have you. There's other places where I have <laughs> different no statements, there, right? Yeah. But one of the questions you have, and I think this is absolutely crucial in our culture today, is what is the value of a truth that no one believes? I mean. Isn't that really where we are at today? I mean, isn't that just categorically, fundamentally the problem we have? That there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can be put on the table as a truth that cannot be categorically denied, no matter how false that categorical denial is. And what do we do in that situation? What do we do in that world? So in that <clears throat> in that world in which, as you say, I think we are living, the 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 I think you use the word problem, I'd say the the challenge, the disagreement is not about, <clears throat> and this is why I say the the misuse of the or overuse of the post-truth label to describe the era can be a little misleading. What people disagree about is not, I think, whether truth is important. Like in the post-truth label sometimes suggests, oh, nobody really cares anymore what's true or not. That's not true at all, I think. That's not right. I think people care very deeply about the truth. They just have deep disagreements about what is true. I don't think that the person who <clears throat> you know, grabbed the gun and came to Comet Ping Pong believed very deeply that he was doing something right. As you say, it was the road he couldn't help traveling. I-95, I guess it was. <laughs> he, came, he came up from North Carolina. Um, uh, that... That, that to me is a, is a, as I said earlier, sort of a perverse commitment to truth. The disagreement is about where the truth can be found. So as you're listing off these sort of sources where one might find truths, like that to me is where the real challenge is. And I'm not breaking any new ground to say that. I think if the article does anything, it's to try to bring that <clears throat> sort of debate or disagreement more into focus with the marketplace of ideas discussion, right? Those sources, those television programs or online sources or whatever they are, those are the justifications. Like those are what the basis for belief could be. And those are, I think, where the deepest disagreements are. So, so to go back to my earlier answer to Nico's question, um, I, I duck a little bit here what the justifications might be because, frankly, I think there's a lot more that one has to work out than I can do in this article. Um, but I think they matter. I think that's actually what people are fighting about more than anything. I mean, I, I'm here defending largely the, you know, um, the role of universities, but I can't do that in every case. And some people think that universities as a whole are, of course, disconnected from the truth and value. So th that to me is what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to bring to the fore of, a, of a, what's otherwise a discussion about abstract truths and falsehoods, which, as you say, could exist in you know, a world in which nobody knows them or, or, or understands them. Well, I them. think what's really important, one of the many important points you make in your article and that is, is how belief is a precondition of knowledge, which itself is a precondition of truth, whatever that may be. And that if you take that belief out of the equation, all right, you have serious problems. I think that's, that's why I was so intrigued by the sentence, you know, uh, what is the value of truth that no one believes, right? And what we have is that crisis of belief. It is precisely that. I don't know when you say that 
you know, everybody values truth. I'm... I'm I'm not certain about that. All right? <laughs> You're right to call me on that. And actually, yeah. you you've you've pointed earlier to the footnote in which I acknowledge that some people are just trolls, nihilists, well, and have well, no real well, belief. Well, <clears throat> no, but I, I wonder. Well, there's also the role of technology in perpetuating, you know, falsehoods. But 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 what I'm concerned about is is that I think I don't know when you say people value truth, that assumes they think about it. All right. I think many folks are more than willing to ignore it, all right? If Donald Trump says it, I believe it. If uh, Hillary Clinton says it, I believe it, all right? And in a sense that truth is almost an aside, all right? There's something legitimating, if you will, and I have to put legitimating in quotes, all right? And if you will, this is part of the problem of the democratization of knowledge. This is the problem that goes back to Plato's writings, to the Republic and what have you. And that is, is that when the demos, when belief is what legitimates truth, then truth is, or knowledge is in a precarious position. On the other hand, in order for a society to function, all right, there has to be a certain buy-in, all right? And I think it's important that we live not in a democratic government or a pure democracy, but in a Republican government. And if you will, the whole idea of Republican government was it was premised on a certain expertise, if you will, particularly in the Senate, at least in times past, let's put it that way. Uh, and so it was that, you know, in, in, in a sense... Legitimation depends on the demos, if you will, buying in, but they can also pollute it. In fact, one of the things I think, and I recommend this strongly to you, um, the writings of Simone Weil, W-E-I-L, and uh, she talks about what happens to truth when it becomes a collective enterprise, all right? and how words take on empty meanings, all right, or words that have empty meanings take on truth and what have you, and how the idea of collective truth is, in a sense, a perversion. And well, so, that's Orwell, too, in the, um, politics in the English language. That's also, and it's also um, uh, Brave New World, Huxley, when he talks about soma tablets and what have you. And so one of the things I just so valued about your article is it says, you know, stop focusing on the truth. Because what's happened is, and you point this out in the 2018 Supreme Court opinion you mentioned, is that it's become, if you will, a trump card, right? And nobody really, they just play it, right? But without thinking about really what, and, and I think the idea to step back and say, as policymakers, as lawmakers, as judges, as a culture, what do we need to get back to some fundamental agreement about knowledge. And I think one of the things I would recommend you think about as you go back, uh, uh, develop these ideas, Joseph, is the role of what, I, what David and I call the harm principle. All right. Ultimately, what everybody agrees on, all right, is if this algorithm causes me to get in a car crash, I'm not going to, you know, I don't care who it is, but if, if, if Trump or Clinton said, jump off the bridge, it's good for you, nobody's going to do it, all right? So there's something about, if you will— now, Not unless they were a cult leader. Right, right. <laughs> but they're, 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 again, yeah, but, but there's something about the harm principle that has to be brought into the equation here. 
And I think that's, in fact, that's, that's why we rely on doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we value what they say in terms of protecting our health uh, more than, you know, what Joe Blow says, you know, in a comment on, on, uh, on the internet. You, you have thoroughly convinced me of many things, Ron, one of which is I have to, I have to think and try to write more on this because a lot of these are questions I haven't even touched. The audience, audience the book is coming. I see it. <laughs> Ron, I think, has already written it for me. Nico, you can say that it originated transcribed here. Transcribed right? it. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that you just raised, though, Ron, which I, I don't address in the paper and I hadn't actually thought through until now, and maybe I should say this, too, because I'm not sure I've, <clears throat> I've clearly um, even stated in, in, during this discussion what the difference is between knowledge as I'm using it and, and truth as it's traditionally described, I think usually when people talk about truth, they mean essentially propositions that are either false or not. Um, you know, when you say Walter Cronkite is dead, not just as a metaphorical figure, but as a person in the world, right? That you can imagine the truth value of that statement. The the definition of knowledge that I'm using, just as, and I'm borrowing here entirely from basic epistemology, and there's all kinds of disagreements among epistemologists as well, is the, the sort of traditional tripartite definition of knowledge as justified, true belief. That in, o- in order to be knowledge, it has uh, something something has to be all of those things. You can't have a belief. You can't have knowledge if it's not true. So that's, you can't, you can't have knowledge about a thing that is false. You can't have knowledge that you don't believe and you can't have knowledge that is not justified. I've been focused on the justifications, like how we come to, you know, support the beliefs that we have that happen to be true. But actually, Ron, I think what you're, what you're doing is pointing out that actually there's a challenge too with the belief um, that, that, that for many people, Actually, there may be a sort of checking out going on. Like this, the world is too noisy. The world is too confusing. It's actually costly to believe uh, in ways that it might not have been before. And that overflow of information from the internet and conflicting signals and, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, he said, he said, she said, she said about things that seem to be factual may cause some people to just stop and just check out. And that's a totally different um, challenge than the one I'm trying to address here. But I think is I think is I think is attached. Well, I, I want to lob some grenades in here. Oh, great. Um, is these, this concern about a post-truth era, is it anything new? I mean, I lived in Manhattan and there was a time when they literally got hundreds, if not thousands of Manhattanites to come out to, I forget what avenue or what uh, street, and try and saw off the bottom half of the, the island because they thought it weighed, weighed too much. It was going to take the whole <laughs> island and the sea. You know, so... Yeah. You know, we talk about one deranged gunman coming into a, a pizza parlor here in D.C. Got lots of people in Manhattan coming with saws trying to saw off the island because one person convinced them that was true. And my other point is, and you you touch on this in your article, isn't truth a long game? Truth will lose out often uh, in the interim, but in the long run of things, it has a long arc and the truth tends to find its footing at some point. So I wanted to get your perspective on those two things. Is this really a crisis that needs to be addressed? And, um, you know, how new is it? These are both great questions. I'll take those in reverse order. On on the first, I don't think there's anything novel about people broadly believing falsehoods um, or, you know, having, having sort of, you know, doubts about what the, what the truth actually is a hundred percent true that, you know, this isn't, this is not in that sense, a novel time in which we're living. I think that, and this goes back a little bit to what Ron and I were talking about, what strikes me and my timeline on this is not as long as it might be, um, uh, is that the, 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 what's new now or not new. What is 
um, more pronounced now than it was even a few decades ago, is disagreement about the bases for truth, where truth can be found. The declining faith in institutions, the declining faith in, for example, the traditional news media, might or might not be good things. But those those strike me as actually things that have changed. Um, universities, the press, people, places one might have looked before to resolve a disagreement or a misunderstanding. I think they're just traditionally. I, I think people are being pulled apart more on that scale, on that side of things, which is again something that uh, tried to that sort of motivates the article. I think it's also right to say that <clears throat> you know over time um, the truth generally in many cases, will out. I'm not somebody who thinks that the marketplace traditionally conceived is necessarily indefensible. In fact, that's one reason I find myself continually drawn to defending the Abrams opinion, even though I think it's it's largely going out of out of fashion. I mean, one example that I've, I've used recently, I don't think it's in the article, is, you know, it's one thing to point out that there are, um, you know, anti-vaxxers who dis, you know, disagree and, and discount the sort of uh, medical consensus about the safety of vaccines, that may be taken as evidence that the truth doesn't out. On the other hand, we have vaccines. Like we have vaccines because over time, you know, scholars and others working hard were able to figure out how these things worked. Of course, there's steps forward and steps back, but you know, over the time, over time, I think the arc generally bends towards truth and and justified true belief. One of the reasons I'm, it does is because people die. The, I was just going to say, literally, the word next words from my mouth. The problem is that the uh, that arc can take a long time to bend, and in the meantime, going back to to, to Ron's earlier point about the harm principle, a lot of people can be hurt, and um, you know, misinformation can contribute to that. The question is. You know, are the are the cures worse than the disease? And and that's where the First Amendment Joseph, comes it in. It seems that right now, today, in a very significant way, and this is obviously not the first time this has happened, but science itself is under blatant attack. I mean, just think about what's happening with climate change, all right, uh, across the world. I mean, um, uh, we have Antarctica melting, you know, at, at an unbelievable pace, faster than ever before. Something that's documented, you know. We have fires in Australia, you know. I mean, all of these things that are they're going on, and yet <clears throat> they're being denied not only in this country but in other countries. We have the knowledge there, all right. How does Use that example and tell me how your theory of free speech plays into that example. How can it correct the problem of that example of climate change denials? Boy, if I could do that, then uh, I really would have a book. Uh, I'm not sure I can totally solve that problem, but I think I can tee it up better than the traditional theory, which is that um, you know, denying science is, again, to Nico's last point, nothing new. I mean, you you and David have an article, if I'm not mistaken, that that literally has the and yet it moves yeah. Galileo line, right? That's that's nothing. Centuries of experience denying scientific progress, and yet over time, science has generally progressed. Um, so, to Nico's last point, I don't think this is necessarily a unique crisis, um, but the stakes are quite high with climate change and and and, and other and, and other issues. I don't think I can, with this article or or any other, convince people of you know who don't believe about the validity of of, of climate science. On the other hand, hopefully what the piece can do is say, you're not going to get there by just beating people over the head with the importance of truth. What you have to do is convince people of the practices that we can rely on to produce it. And that's a harder maybe, but different discussion. But that science did kind of do that with the scientific method, with liberal science. I mean, they came up with these process. At one point, it was a justified true belief on behalf of healers that you bleed people more when they're sick and that's somehow going to make them healthier. And as, uh, what was it, an Abrams time has upset many fighting faiths. Fighting faiths, absolutely. And so I, I worry about 
relying too hard on this justification method and then foreclosing the challenges of our current truths. I think justification can and should be subject to challenge just like truth should be. I mean, I think what counts as a justification it could have been the, because the Bible tells me so, and we don't necessarily accept that one anymore yeah. as a basis for justification and scientific belief or anything else. Absolutely, those can and should evolve. Like, this is the this is the real lesson of, and yet it moves, as Galileo describing you know, his view of the universe, but also the First Amendment. I mean, and yet it moves. These things continue. Something um, that you just said... Um, strikes me as very important, and that is, what is the First Amendment? I think implicit in what you're writing is that the First Amendment cannot be confined to courtrooms, to lawyers' work, to the legal academy. It is part of the culture, all right? that in order to operate, all right, it needs more than simply legal mechanisms, all right? It needs buy-in, if you will, at some point from the culture, and at another point, it also needs to kind of, if you will, govern that culture, all right? And the reason, I mean, you could have all of the best of theories, all right, but if the culture causes them to dysfunction, all right, or malfunction, all right, then they're of no moment. And so it seems to me that when we talk about the First Amendment, we can't limit ourselves to what judges and lawyers and legal academics say, all right? We also have to look at what sociologists say, what economists say, right? Because that, if you will, those are part of the preconditions, all right? I mean, you've mentioned some of them, all right? But I mean, what we're having, if, if, if we are indeed facing a crisis in truth related to science and particularly, let's say, climate change, all right? right? What's producing that is something in the culture. And until that something in the culture is remedied, all right, there's not going to be any buy-in, all right? People will just continue to deny it until, until they die and then well, truth right. wins out because only because it's killed everybody. Well, let me, let me disagree with you here slightly. I, I don't think... I think there's always going to be people that discount things that are widely accepted truths. I, I don't think you're going to ever get 100% consensus on no, climate change. The challenge there, I think, is different in so far as how do you get the political will on behalf of the world in order to do something that's very expensive. And I, that doesn't seem like, to me, fundamentally a free speech or First Amendment question because I think the consensus is there on behalf of a lot of the people who can do things. Um, and, you know, governments change. So not every government is going to be on board, but I, I feel like there's a pretty good scientific consensus on that. I, I, I'm struggling to see where the, the, the free speech implication is. Well, see, I don't, I don't see the First Amendment as limited to law, all right? I do not. I mean, Machiavelli said, others will tell you what the world should be, but I will tell you what the world is. There is the world of the First Amendment as in law. So, for example, at last I checked, uh, obscenity is still illegal, right? Miller versus California, right? It's still illegal. But in the culture... All right, ever since the advent of the internet, it's become legitimized. The culture of free speech has legitimized obscenity, footnote except kitty porn. All right. So it seems to me that when you talk about the First Amendment, you can't limit it, particularly if you're using terms like belief, all right, you can't limit it to law. And I think that's important. No, part and, of and I agree with you, but I think the values baked into free expression, the the dialogue that happens as a result of this expression can only take you so far. Action is a whole nother thing. Whether you have the political will, the financial will, or whatever to actually do something about about 
the knowledge that you've accepted is, I think, another question. I, so I think I, <clears throat> the one thing I just I would just add to what what you were both saying is that I a hundred percent emphatically agree with Ron, and I think that probably Nico, you agree with this too. That the, the a system of free speech is more than just court holdings or doctrine, um, and certainly this article is is meant to be in that in that vein. And Ron, what you're describing there with sort of obscenity as a matter of constitutional protection and obscenity as sort of a matter of sort of cultural reality is one of those interesting examples where sort of culture allows more than the constitution protects, which of course happens in lots of other areas as well. And they can, the, the, the disagreement can go in the other way too, of course, where people are have an in, in instinct to censor more than the constitution would, would, would particularly allow. And that's where I think the, 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 the lesson of, you know, learn at hand to pick many others, right? You know, that you, shouldn't put your faith too much in in paper documents, constitutions, believe me, these are false hopes, I think is absolutely right. If you don't have a culture which values freedom of speech, or for that matter, truth or knowledge as I've defined it, then whatever doctrinal machinery you put in place is only, I mean, maybe necessary, but not sufficient, maybe not even important though. I mean, these much, much more important, broader cultural discussions, which Someone like me writing in the Harvard Law Review has absolutely no connection to whatsoever. That's not that's not at all the the the, the goal or the hope of of this kind of article. That requires people um, at a much different pay grade than than mine. Well, I don't know about that, but let me. Uh, can you say a few words because I think that's a good point of discussion about the road to Larissa? The road to Larissa is fantastic. So the the um, it actually it it works nicely since we we're already talking about um, Holmes and the road I can't help traveling being his definition of definition of truth. So the road to Larissa it's is like an album. It's right. Exactly. <laughs> I, can, I can actually I can his first see, rock album. I can see the cover now. Actually, yeah. that's that would be that would be kind of a cool looking album, and he would look cool on an album cover. <laughs> um, so the the road to, to Larissa is um, is something I, I use as sort of an animating. Um, uh, story, explanation, definition in the article for just why it is that knowledge is different from and perhaps more valuable than true belief. And it's a story that's taken from the Socratic Dialogues um, where um, so Socrates is discussing with 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 Mino the, the nature of virtue, its relationship to knowledge. And he gets him to agree that two people, if they could give you directions to Larissa, or as he uses the phrase, anywhere else you like, I just had to look this up. I thought that was kind of just kind of <laughs> kind of cute. Um, would be could be similarly accurate, and um, and yet that one of them had the right opinion about that of which the other has knowledge, right? That in other words, one person sort of sort of happened to be right about the way, right way to get to Larissa. This just happens to be a town, um, uh, or uh, and the other one happened to have something more about it. That is that is true knowledge. And he asked, well, what's the difference between those, and and why would one matter than the other? Uh, matter more than the other? Why would we prize knowledge more than just right opinion? Um, and Socrates' answer contains a lot, of course, um, but part of it is that to have knowledge of something is to have it tied down in a way. Um, and he, he here invokes the sculptures of Daedalus, which would walk away if not tied down. He's like, it means nothing to have a sculpture made by Daedalus if it's just going to walk away from you. It needs to be sort of tied down in a way that will stay. Knowledge, he suggests, is similar. You have reasons for your belief, you'll hold them in a way that just having uh, right thought flit through your head won't. Um, and that sort of set the stage for something which <clears throat> Plato later comes and, el and elaborates in other, in other writings about the difference between just truth, that is right opinion, and um, justified true, true belief. So it's kind of the, the beginning, or at least a beginning, of this long epistemological discussion to which I make reference throughout the paper, and I should just 
quickly disclaim any effort to advance epistemology. I'm not a trained philosopher. Um, I uh, I think it's important to borrow from other disciplines where we can. But is what you're saying you don't have justified? I, have, I, have, I think I'm justified, but not <laughs> not justified if I were speaking in front of a group of philosophers. So if we want to get to Larissa, we can either uh, rely on somebody who has knowledge, who's traveled the road and has very fixed knowledge, or we could also get there by relying on somebody that has true belief, right? But the true belief, what makes it valuable is that at some point let, – let's say that the, the guy that has true belief, it's based on a map, right? But the map has to be based on somebody that has knowledge, right? So it always comes back to knowledge, right? And so if, if you just kind of move that forward into modernity, all right, think about ways, right? We were talking about this earlier. Right. Ways the app, that is. Ways the app. W A Z E. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank little plug for Ways. I don't know if right. it's sponsored. Yeah, we'll put it on the show notes. <laughs> right, right. Fingers crossed. So, uh, the best way may be the quickest way. It, the best way may be the way that has the fewest um, uh, speed cameras. Uh, the best way may be the way that takes you the safest route. All right. So, uh, but if you just think about that, now, the road to Larissa is best – well, I mean, what does technology do to that true belief-knowledge dichotomy? It's a really interesting question and a hard one. Um, I've been thinking – I've been trying to remember the phrase that you and David use beautifully in, in your 1990 article. I think it's Texas Law Review, which is it's something like sort of intellectual entertainment or something like that, the sort of – which you were referring to earlier that, you know, probably 30 years now – down the road, you would double down on even more as describing the way free speech culture um, uh, uh, sometimes sometimes works. So, additional information through apps, online technology, etc., can degrade. Um, it can also inform. I mean, ways. I don't use the app, but I hear good things um, to the degree <laughs> good that. Good luck it's, getting to Larissa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never gotten lost going to Larissa, although I never tried. Um, that um, uh, that to the degree that it's based on sort of a you know a a justification that one would um, one would value that is other people's experiences and underlying map um, uh, then what it does I think is provide and this is going back to Nico's earlier point about the intersection between the different First Amendment values it provides knowledge reliable you know justified true beliefs to people who then get to make choices autonomous choices about what to do with their own you know locomotion their own travel um, and that strikes strikes me as a good thing um, I don't know enough about the app and what else it's used for but uh, in general that strikes me as you know overall a positive um, positive development of sort of in information being used pretty well mm -hmm. I want to uh I know we'll have some listeners here who will just say, oh, this, these are a bunch of you know, people in D.C. telling us the right things to believe because they think they know the mm -hmm. right, right way. This is just Plato and his philosopher king's argument. But we live in a free society and we can believe what we want to believe uh, for whatever reasons we decide. So how would we respond to those sorts of people? Because I think it is – it, it is a legitimate ar argument. Oh, I, I, I totally understand where the concern would come from. And again, so let me – I may have overemphasized this, but let me do it again. There's nothing in the article that's trying to say these are the justifications that are right. I don't try to say and I don't believe that you know because a person has a degree in a particular area, their speech is worth more or counts more. That's not the argument. The argument is, and I think it's intuitive to most people, that why you believe what you believe matters. And I think that um, that's something certainly that – 
any lawyers listening, I think, will share and understand. Like we understand as part of our practice that it matters how you get there and not whether you get to the right result. I think that most people believe that too. Um, people differ deeply on what justifications they count on most, whether they look to universities or to churches or social institutions or whatever else. Um, and what I'm trying to do is just tee up that discussion. And certainly not to say, here's what matters the most. I think that if but anything, it... it's more democratizing, I think, than the traditional truth-based approach, which essentially says, puts truth at the middle by itself. And that's essentially, I think, even more like we know what's right and what's wrong. And what I'm saying is it matters how you get there. Yeah. I mean, can it be more, can it be simpler than, yeah, I mean, you posited churches, universities, say government in some sense. Uh, could it even be simpler just saying it, it matters that you ask why? Absolutely. I refer to this in the I have a whole section it on the paper. It doesn't need to be an argument to an authority or <clears throat> an institution. Absolutely. I, one of the arg in fact, I, I think that before I talk about these institutions, which I call external justifications, I have a section in the article on what I call internal justifications, which is it is a totally defensible view of epistemology that a view is justified if you've thought hard about it, mm -hmm. if you really do believe it. You're not just irresponsibly throwing out, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, some proto-belief that you haven't actually interrogated. If you've interrogated and thought hard about something, that's good enough for, for, that, for that theory of, of justification. That counts as knowledge on many accounts. Um, so absolutely, I think that could be plenty. Um, is it gonna carve some things out? Sure, um, that's absolutely, I think that's true well, too. That, well, and that's kind of the last question I'll put here and then I'll give Ron the closing questions here. Uh, my boss's argument is he's always talked about me, it's important to know the world as it is. So he's never, really relied on the marketplace of ideas. It's it's important to know what people actually think, not just when you think they're right, but especially, or not just when you think they're wrong, but especially when they you think they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Like it's important to know wrong thinking. So how would your justified true belief account for that value if you even think it's a value, knowing the world as it is, <laughs> even if it means knowing that there are people out there who believe that there's a sex ring at, uh, Comet Pizza. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The I I think I like the idea that um, you know all else equal. Of course, I'd prefer to see the world as it is um, than as it's not. I that that strikes me as um, not inconsistent. I don't think, mm -hmm. but maybe I, maybe I should. I should listen to the, the the show where you talk to your boss, so I can yeah. get, get a more <laughs> yeah, more view. He's a more articulate spokesperson. No, no, no. I just meant so that I can hear more about it, yeah. not because as you say it, it sounds exactly right to me. But it sounds to me sort of similar to see the world as it is, which sounds like truth. Um, we often use it to contextualize. We yeah. often use it in the discussion of of hate speech. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our our co-founder Harvey Silverglade once went to give a speech. Yes. Uh, opposing a hate speech code at some university or another, and uh, a student a gay student in the audience said, no, I want to know who the homophobe in the room is so I know not to turn my back to them. There's so in, in that sense, there's knowledge, there's importance. Understood, yeah. understood. That makes a lot of sense. And so so with regard to things like hate speech or, or, or things like that, I think that honestly my framework, just like the Marketplace of Ideas framework, is not particularly well suited because often what's being stated doesn't have any truth value at all, right? To express a hateful view about somebody else just because of the color of their skin or their sexual identity or whatever else is not really the kind of thing for which the cognitive values of the First Amendment are really well suited, which goes back to our earlier discussion about how it can't just be that there's one First Amendment value, value to, yeah. to, to rule them all. On the other hand, um, I also want to know if I'm that person, where did that person get the belief from? Like, what are they reading? What are they referring to? Who's influencing them to kind of come around to that view? That to me is part of knowing the world as it is. It's like, where do these, where do these, these you know, vitriolic or, or nasty or awful or to me um, uh, 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 objectionable viewpoints come from? 
But that that's also plays, a story about justifications. Yeah, yeah, and it also plays into the democratic value too, yes. because in, in a democracy, you need to bring people along to your side, and in order to bring them along to their side, got to know where they're coming the, from. You need to Absolutely. know the why. So that's exactly it. Another name for the article could have been the need to know the why. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I write the follow-up piece, as uh, as Ron has suggested, that, that kind of goes to it. It's the knowing the why. Why do we value a particular truth? Why does something particularly count as truth? Why do we believe the things we believe? Those are questions, as I frame them, about justification. And that's to say they're important and not to say I have a particular single answer to which justifications count. So talk to me or talk to us about your knowledge-based um, and true belief theory and how it would apply in the context of commercial speech. <clears throat> would it, the doctrine be the same as it is? Would it be different? That's a tricky and interesting question, um, and I'm not sure I can answer it on the spot. I have to think it through more. Um, it's easier for me to see how there's implications here for professional speech straight up to the degree that that's sort of a, not even a fully recognized doctrine, but kind of a sort of arm of doctrine. Um, I'm not sure I could say anything smart or interesting about how it would apply to commercial speech. Well, then The fact that you asked suggests that you have some some idea here, Ron, no, so I'm going to well, write it down. No, 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 no. no. Um, by, by the way, a lot of times I ask questions I can't answer oh, good, precisely because... <laughs> and I, then I fail to answer <laughs> but, them and we're but, a nice routine. But, but then let's just take a spin off of that. Will you just say a few words about your discussion of National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus uh, Becerra? Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting case. It's actually hard for me to do this one... Um, uh, sort of on the spot too, because I think that's a complicated case with a lot happening in it. Um, we should briefly kind of hard to summarize it. Yeah, so so um, I'll, I'll call it NIFLA for short. Um, this was a two, uh, 2018 case, which um, uh, which Ron um, referenced, um, referenced referenced earlier. It involved a California law called the FACT Act, F-A-C-T, um, which imposed certain disclosure requirements on what are sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers, um, uh, which might appear from the outside to be standard healthcare providers, um, but which in fact are designed to provide anti-abortion counseling. And what the California law would have required um, is that they notify women that California provides free or low cost services, including abortions, um, and that unlicensed clinics must notify women that California has not licensed the clinics to provide medical services, right? So this is challenged on free speech among other grounds. Um, the Ninth Circuit um, upheld the restrictions and then in a 5-4 decision with Justice Thomas writing, um, the Supreme Court struck them struck them down. Um, there's a lot to say about that opinion and to unpack it. Um, and they, he quotes Holmes. He relies he on the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I mean, and actually in kind of an interesting way, I happen to have it here in, um, happen to have it here in front of me. He actually quotes Holmes almost more confidently than Holmes himself. So the, what, what, Abrams says in 1919 is that the marketplace of a not the marketplace of ideas the marketplace that is is the is the best test of truth. What Justice Thomas says in Nifla actually is even stronger than that is that um, uh, that the truth will ultimately prevail. That's even more confident than Holmes. Holmes's argument could be read as comparative. This is better than government intervention. Um, Thomas seems to be taking the even stronger position that truth will um, will will eventually out. Um, I have a lot of problems with Nifl, as I say. It's a little, it's a little hard for me to kind of unpack them. Um, yeah, we can do a whole podcast once. You should. Um, in fact, have you done one? Uh, <laughs> no, I know that was Nifla. an insight. I mean, we're two years out almost at this point. Yeah, but. I guess that's true, but still, still hot and still interesting. Uh, but the questions are still relevant. They really are, and and I actually think legitimately, um, uh, I think legitimately hard. Um, I guess the thing that I'd say about Nifla that um, I find tricky is. 
the 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 information that California wanted to require these centers to um, produce was, um, I think, by any definition, sort of factual, truthful. That is, just that California provides low cost medical services, including abortions. This center has not been licensed to provide healthcare services. No debate about whether that's true or false speech. This isn't like an Alvarez kind of a situation. Um, but one of the reasons why Justice Thomas says that's impermissible is because it involves abortion, um, which is a controversial area, and that the state can't require this kind of speech in a controversial area. And I just think that's too quick. I think that's too easy that to dismiss the sort of factual predicates of a normative debate um, uh, as themselves being controversial is a little bit too too broad of a swing. And that we might actually learn something. And he, I'm, I'm, the reason I talk about NIFLA a bit is because he talks a fair bit about the professions and how there's professional disagreements. And I'm quoting here from the opinion, professionals might have a host of good faith disagreements, both with each other and with the government on many topics in their respective fields. Doctors and nurses might disagree about the ethics of assisted suicide. Lawyers and marriage counselors might disagree about the prudence of prenuptial agreements or the wisdom of divorce. I think that's blurring together a lot of things which are normative disagreements and professional disagreements. There is no, as I see it, truth of the matter about the wisdom of divorce. That's not a place where the marketplace of ideas is particularly useful. There's no truth to the matter. The ethics of assisted suicide is not a truth proposition to begin with. But there are other areas in which absolutely we defer to the medical profession or the lawyers um, with regard to providing legal advice, for example, which if you do without a law license, you're violating the law. Like those, those to me are different kinds of debates and the conflating of them in NIFLA I think is at least potentially problematic. One of the things that NIFLA does ironically is it cuts off information in the name, in the name of the marketplace of ideas. I mean, literally truthful information. And and there's still arguments to be made that, you know, compelled speech, even if truthful, distorts the market. And I think that would have been a better place to understand Yeah, I don't know where the limiting principle was there, because then you can make the argument that certain universities are compelled to provide certain information, uh, you know, alongside speakers, for example. And, you know, so I just, I just worry if, if well, you open the door to... Would malpractice laws apply to a doctor who's a Christian scientist? You know, and you know has certain normative religious beliefs uh, about medicine, and you know that doctor declined to uh, inform you about certain things because he or she didn't believe in medical treatments. Well, could you not, bring a, not, could not, you bring a malpractice action against them? And could if you did, could they raise a NIFLA defense? But it's not illegal to advocate against abortion. I mean, I don't I don't have all the facts of the case in front of me, but that seems to be what these centers think, are for. I think, is I mean, they they exist precisely because you can't get an abortion the, in California. The, right? the challenge I think is this, and this is this will be for your next podcast because yeah. I certainly can't answer it. Um, <laughs> yeah, is, we can keep is, going. I realize we're over. <laughs> that's fine. I'm, I'm enjoying it when I'm when I'm talking with Ron. I'm enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I'm trouble. The, the, no, you're not the, in trouble. That's They're just fun. So. The, the challenge, I think, is exactly figuring out the context in which if we're going to recognize some kind of doctrine of professional speech, that professional speech actually attaches. It certainly can't be the case that professionals at all times are engaging in professional speech. And this goes a little bit to your point, Nico. It's not at all, you know, to advocate, you know, for or against divorce or for or against flat earth or for and against vaccines in public discourse. Like, even if you're a medical professional advocating against vaccines in public discourse, that doesn't at all mean you're necessarily going to be subject to a malpractice action. You're just talking in public in uh, in the public forum. If, however, you give, you know, and again, the standards are high, but if you give such bad medical advice to somebody that they are hurt as a result, you might be subject to a malpractice suit in the context of a professional 
relationship. Now, the boundaries of that are hard to define. uh, Claudia Haupt is is an interesting young scholar who's been writing on this recently. I recommend her work to everyone. Um, It's not something I resolve here, but I'm comfortable with the world in which there are contexts in which professionals are held to a different standard um, and may be subject to malpractice, for example, but it can't be the thing that the exception that swallows the public discourse rule. Just one closing comment, and I'll be brief. (laughs) I think um, when one thinks about professional speech, Joseph, it's far broader than may be suggested in your article. Um, For example, is there professional speech in the political context? Well, a lot of people say absolutely no. That's a different matter. Really? Well, what about questions about foreign policy? All right. I mean, isn't part of the criticism, at least of the current administration from certain quarters, isn't the part of the criticism is, is that the reliance on experts and what has to do with foreign policy, when it has to do with climate change, what has to do with criminal justice has been abandoned. All right. And it seems to me that, you know, and certainly the dialogue with Mino, really, what the reason Socrates is concerned about Mino is because Mino has tyrannical uh, propensities, all right, as a ruler. And and he's trying to show that there's some relationship between knowledge, if you will, and how a polis is ruled. And so for us to just say, to cabin professional speech to what doctors do and what others and say, well, all the rest is just political, we'll leave that alone, really kind of undermines, if you will, the the, uh, the value of expertise, knowledge, precisely where sometimes it's most important, and that's in the political realm. I want to end on a cliffhanger here so that we can mm-hmm. continue this conversation because it's a great question, Ron, and I want to look forward to the rest of the conversation in the future. Yeah. Well, oh, I, I wanted to add, uh, sometimes people talk about this in, in the context of the press clause, right, with licensing journalists as well. I mean, what justifies a journalist in doing journalism or what is what even is journalism? I was on a panel recently at a high school with a a former journalist, now lawyer, who kind of advocates advocates for defining what the press is, and then the logical question is, how do you do that? And well, does it require licensure? I mean, is it a sort of profession in that traditional sense? And what would anyway? We could go down the rabbit hole on that one. But I want to thank you both for coming, Ron. Thank you thank as you. always for joining us, Professor Bloker. Thanks for being in D.C. and making this work. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. Yeah, the article we discussed is Free Speech and Justified True Belief. It was in the Harvard Law Review, correct? Yes, and the other one we didn't get to is Bands, which was in the Yale Law Review. And of course, Ron Collins edits our First Amendment News at uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, although editorially independent. He's the author of many books and has taught law for many, many years, including to many of you here on this podcast. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We also take email feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show. You can do that at 215-315-0100. We love reviews on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening.